How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Hello. Hey, we got a full week of sun coming ahead, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually nice. Um, if you're new here, uh, uh, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm the student pastor here. Um, and so that's all you got to know, I guess. Um, but we are in this series uh, called the Book of Romans, okay? Um, and, and I get the privilege to just continue this series with you. Um, and the Book of Romans, in short, okay, um, it is known as this guy named Apostle Paul within the Bible. Um, it's his full expression of his study about God. Okay, the book of Romans is, is known as this thing, Paul's full expression of his theology, his study of who God is. So if someone ever asks you what is the book of Romans all about, just say it's about the theology of God, right? Um, I guess you could say that about the whole entire Bible, uh, but in particular with Ro Romans, this is, this is it. Uh, because Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing as a, a, someone who knows the Scripture, someone who knows the law. He's writing as a Jew, okay. Um, so he knows what he's talking about. And so he's about to list off a series of questions. And at the same time, he's going to give us a series of questions and a series of answers to those questions. Because as a Jewish person, he had a ton of questions about, the, about who God is, how does this all work, right? Um, but, but before we get there, uh, I, I love this practice. Um, uh, any, any chance I get uh, that, that I can join in with people is this, uh, I guess, this quiet, this still state of mind. Um, so as a church, I just want us to be still and quiet, uh, maybe for a few seconds, maybe for a few minutes. I know uh, for a lot of us, that's, that's hard to come by, um, to just sit still. Uh, that we're always doing something. We're always moving somehow, some way. Uh, so just a few seconds. I just want you guys to bow your heads, um, you know, whisper to God if you want to. Uh, ask him to listen. Um, ask him to speak to you. Ask him to convict your heart. Or if you have anything to confess to the Lord, uh, do it now. Um, and, and I'll pray for us. God, this morning, um, I pray just those few short seconds or, or a minute or so, um, that was just a minute for, for you just to speak to us, um, for us just to release all the stresses and the worries and ev everything that's going on within our lives outside of these four walls, that we just give those up to you. God, in the Psalms, it says, Jerusalem is... Uh, surrounded by mountains. So God, may you surround your people as you surround this city. God, may you surround this church, everyone within this building. May your presence be felt and may it be known. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. In this passage in particular we're about to read, Paul is talking to, uh, to Jewish people. Okay. But this church is mixed with uh, two types of people groups, uh, the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people. Right? Uh, the Jewish people, the chosen people by God and those who were not chosen, which would probably most likely be us. Okay. Um, so for another term, it's the... It's the Gentiles, okay? We would be known as Gentiles if we lived in biblical times. That's what people would call us. Uh, we're Gentiles. Uh, and so here, starting off in verse 1, first question, Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision, right? If you want to know what circumcision is, look it up online with your wife. I don't know what you'll get, but you'll get something. Um, but... All right, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision, right? Back in the Levitical times, back in um, Old Testament times, right, if you had a newborn child in particular who was a male, on the eighth day you had to snippity-snip, right? Um, you, <laughs> that just, that's not even in the notes. <laughs> you had to, uh, you had to circumcise your, your newborn baby boy. Why? Because it was a symbol of dedication. It was a symbol of setting this baby boy apart to be part of God's people. It was a setting apart physically and saying, showing the world, saying this is God's people. This is God's child. Okay. Um, very similar to what we do in dedication, uh, but they did it physically. And it was a law that God made um, back in the Old Testament time. Okay. And, and this law in particular, this is what uh, Paul is addressing. He says, what advantage does this circumcision have? What advantage does knowing the law have? And then and so Paul, in the previous verse, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So the Jewish people within this church were so confused. We're just like, we're God's chosen people. We know the law. We, we have all these things, okay. Uh, we, we follow the law to the T, okay. We circumcise every single male within this, this promise, this, this nation. And Paul, what are you saying? It's, it's not enough? That obeying this law that, the God, that God told us to do, you're saying it's, it's dumb? And that's why Paul says in verse 1, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? He's asking this question for them. Because Paul wrestled with these questions also. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? What was the point in all of that? What was the point in knowing the law? He, verse 2 says this. Uh, Paul answers and says, much in every way. Knowing the law. Understanding what the first five books of the Bible were. Okay. Knowing what God said to you, knowing the laws that God 
shared to you. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, right, with the prophecies of God, with the scriptures of God. Paul is talking in particular to the Jewish people and saying, you know the law. That is of great advantage. You know what hurts God. You know what pleases God. Having that knowledge, that existence um, in your mind, knowing what hurts and pleases God is of great advantage. And if you're sitting here, you have a big advantage against everyone outside of these walls. You have an advantage of knowing what hurts and pleases the Lord. Versus someone who doesn't. Right? And this is what Paul is getting at. You don't. You don't see the advantage that you, you're that much closer to understanding what pleases God versus what doesn't. Let me give you some scenarios here because uh, you guys are probably wondering well, how does this all make sense, right? Um, scenario one, um, let, let's go with a professional athlete versus uh, a non-professional athlete, right? Like, like me, professional. Um, <laughs> Uh, someone who is a child who grows up in a professional athlete's family, uh, we could assume that the child is might be athletic, um, girl or boy. Um, the, the, the child is going to have a higher knowledge of what the game is about, right? whatever game it is that they're professionals at. Um, and then on the other side, Right, we have this normal person. Most of us are normal. Let's be real. If you're here, you're a normal person and are not a professional athlete, right? So we have the other side who is the non-professional. The child grows up within that family, um, right? And they try to be good at sports, and they're good to an extent. They get on the varsity level of the high school team. They go to junior college, right? But in the meantime, you got this professional person who got all the money, who has all the knowledge through whatever parent is a professional athlete. They go to all the best camps. They go through all the best trainings. They go to speed camp, strength training, all that stuff. So you tell me who has the advantage there, the person, the athlete who is not part of the professional family or the athlete who is, right? Who has the advantage there? Um, second scenario, right? Uh, a child who grows up in a healthy, uh, loving family versus a child who doesn't. So when the child gets married who is in the healthy, loving family, right, he knows what a healthy family looks like versus the other person who has gone through seeing his parents divorce, right, who has gone through his mother uh, sleeping around and his dad bringing home a random woman in the middle of the night. You tell me who has the advantage of who's going to be the better husband, who's going to be the better wife. Is it this person or this person who has the advantage? Lastly, right, someone who grows up in a Christian home, someone who goes to church every day, not every day, I would hate that, uh, right? Uh, so, I guess I do that, I work here. <laughs> so someone, who, um, someone who, who grows up in a Christian home, right, goes to church every Sunday, um, someone who, who, whose family really values um, youth group over sports, Right, 
um, versus the family who has no knowledge of God, who has a sense of there might be a God, but that's all there is. You tell me who's going to be, who might be closer to following Jesus, this person or that person, right? And, and this is what Paul is getting at, right? There's an advantage to you sitting here. It might not get you to heaven. It might not get you um, out of hell just by your attendance. But Paul's saying there is an advantage. The fact that you're sitting here, you understand that there is a God somehow, that you understand what pleases and hurts the Lord. Much in every way, you guys are hearing God's word. You guys are reading God's word versus those who have never read God's word. And this is what Paul is saying, right? He's saying you're so close to understanding that it was Jesus' work on the cross, which is the only thing right, that saves you from his wrath. That all the good that you're doing, all the law stuff that you're following, right, rather than that being your salvation, it's the, you're so close to understanding that it was Jesus' work on the cross and not your work. The reason why you obey is not to be accepted by God, uh, but you obey because God has accepted you. Tim Keller says in his book, religion operates on the principle, I obey Therefore, I am accepted by God. But the operating principle of the gospel in which Paul is trying to tell us here, uh, but the operating principle of the gospel is I am accepted by God through what Christ has done. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the Jews and to us today, that our work does not get us Jesus. It does not make Jesus love us more, okay? If anything, you're getting further away because you're controlling things. You're thinking you could do things on your own. You think your obedience is something that will get you to the Lord. But where the gospel says your obedience can't get you anywhere. It was Christ's obedience on the cross when he died for you. That's what gets you forward. That's what gets you eternity in heaven. But you're so close. You know the law. You're so close. You're sitting in this room. You're so close. You have all the clues. Again, just like the escape room, you get three clues to get out, right? God gives us all these clues to understand that it was through Jesus, his work on the cross and not ours. So what advantage do you have? Much in every way. Because you are hearing God's word. You are understanding it more and more. Don't get lost in your work. Don't fall into the Jewish tendency of a work-based grace. I, I guess the question I just want to pose is why do you obey? Why? All right. You sitting in the chairs, me standing up here, you know, this is a question I ask myself. Uh, everything I do, I, I know, and even when I do it for my wife and, and other people, I have to ask the question, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to get praise or am I doing this to get praise from the Lord? 
Am I doing this not to, uh, am I doing this to get accepted by God or am I doing this because I love God? So when you're about to do something, what's your motive? What's your heart behind all of that? Why do you go to church? Right? The truth is some, some of you guys might be going to church because your girl goes here. I'm glad you're here, but the motive is somewhat corrupt. Right? <laughs> Let's just be real. That, that's, that's some of us in this room. Girl or boy, you're in here because you want that you-know-what. So you're going to do whatever it takes. So what's your motive? Why are you here? Why do you want to obey the Lord? Guys, the gospel's real. The gospel's raw. So it's going to talk about the hard stuff. And we're not going to, I know Jim and I are not going to shy away from the hard stuff up here. Because sin is real. So we're not going to deny it. So we're going to address it. Where's your heart at? Why do you obey? Let's keep moving. Paul answers uh, another question. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does God's, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some Jews were unfaithful with the law? What if all that... What if they didn't follow it? What if they, they, they hurt God and all those things? Does God's faithfulness, does that mean his faithfulness gets, it goes away? Okay. Um, does God's faithfulness, is it contingent on our obedience? Right. Is God's promises, is God's work, is God's love, is his faithfulness, is his truth, is it contingent on what we do? Right. That's, a, that's a great question. And, and this is why Paul poses it because he probably asked himself, but in verse 4 he says, by no means. That is absurd to think that through our obedience, God will do things. That through our obedience, we think God will move f further. Okay, let, let, let me explain this just a little bit more, okay. Uh, as, as a human race, we're, I guess we're on the top of the food chain. Um, I, so there's a, a degree of, of man, we're, we're all there is, right. There's this attitude of we're the human race. <laughs> Nothing. We're going to shoot things. We're going to shoot animals if they attack us. We're going to punch an animal if it attacks us. Right? There, there, there's just some sort of conceit within our hearts as a human race. And, and what Paul is trying to do here, he's trying to show you that, bro, you're not all that. <laughs> right? Do you think you can control God? Right? Mistakes that we make as a human race. Uh, we think that God created, um, it, it, we think that God is created like us. Right? First of all, right, God is not created. God is God. I don't know how that works, but God is God. He is the top of the food chain. If there is a God food chain, right? 
we, we think God is created for us. No, God is not created. We are created for him. The mistake we make is we try to elevate ourselves constantly to thinking that we are God and that God bows down to us. There's no way God bows down to us. Mistake number two, um, all right, piggybacking on mistake one, God is our servant. Right. Yeah, God is a servant, but he's not your personal servant. He's not your butler. He ain't your maid. Right. He serves because that's what he does. That's what he loves to do. But he's not no genie in a bottle. Okay. The truth there is that we were created to be his servants. Whatever color you are, whatever, whether you have hair or not, if you have an arm or not, God still created you to serve him. There are countless of people with no legs, no arms, right, who are serving the Lord hard. I don't, I don't know why that came up, but I just did. Um, right. But. God is not our servant. We are his. Mistake number three, we elevate our thinking to God. So um, here's what I mean by that. So when Paul says this, what if some were unfaithful, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God, right? He's trying to elevate himself to, man, um, I can control God. But no, Paul is is really trying to show us that our thinking, uh, we try to elevate it to the standard of God when we cannot. Right? You're not smarter than a fifth grader, right? So how can you be smarter than God? God's thinking is so beyond what what we could ever think. It's in a whole different category. Okay, he's the creator of SATs, he's the creator of ACTs, he's the creator of whatever other tests that we fail at. He does not fail those things, right? He is the creator, his thinking is the standard that we will never reach. You know why? Because we are not God. There are times where we think we are. But we're not. God's faithfulness is not contingent on our obedience. Um, let's, let's move on to, to verse 4. It says this, Let God be true, everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Um, let, let me explain this a little more. God's faithfulness is not contingent on our obedience. And because of that, the scripture says, in comparison to God, when we're stacked up against the Lord, we look like liars. So let me explain this just a little more. Um, me and my wife are, are, are moving on five years of marriage, right? Um, and we thought, okay, uh, by the time we were 30 and 25, which we are now, um, we thought we were going to have babies. We thought there was going to be a fetus in the tummy, but ain't no fetus, right? We thought there was going to be a two-legged thingy in the dang thing. But there is no thing. 
We tried for a year. We planned it. We worked on it. We told people. We told people to pray for us. Right? We spoke it into existence. We said, God, we want a child. We want to know what it's like to be parents. We want to know what it's like to love unconditionally. But guess what? Four, four years and two months later, we just got this hairy dang dog. <laughs> right? You, you, you know why? Because I'm not God. My plans, my faithfulness, what I say, my truths, my promises are so contingent on so many other things. Your dream vacation, guess what? All it takes is a flight delay for one day of your vacation to be, go away. Your kid has a kid. You coming back early. Right? <laughs> Sorry, right? Your kid has a kid, you're coming back early. It's, it's going to happen. You, do you realize our plans are so unplanned? God does not have a plan B. That is mistake number four. God, we think God has contingency plans. He does not have plan Bs. All he has is plan As. His faithfulness is contingent on him and him alone. Our faithfulness, what we do, does not control God's faithfulness. Because of what we just explained. Our plans, what we do, are too contingent on other things versus God who is at a different, total, knowledge, thinking, creator level that we're just down here. I thought we were going to have kids. Got a beast. And God, but God was just planning things slowly and slowly. He's showing us that, man, you got to get out of debt first so you could take care of your, your family. Right? There, there are times where I'm thinking, man, God, if we had our plans of three kids in our situation now, our kids would be terrible. <laughs> right? Hindsight, looking back at those things. God knows what he's doing. No matter how much we plan, if God's hand's not in it, he's not just gonna, he's not gonna let it happen. Let's keep moving. Verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? If our sinful, selfish nature uh, brings more good, if our evil, if our uh, selfish things that we want to do, right, um, we want to break the law, we want to get with women, we want to get with men, we want to get drunk every single weekend, we want to smoke as much uh, Mary J as possible, right? Uh, if, if that serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, right? And Paul says in, in, in verse 6, he says, by no means, right? For then how could God judge the world? By no means. God is not unjust, nor is he unfair, nor is he unrighteous. Remember, the word of God came to the Jews first, okay? He extended the gift first to them, right? He, he showed them, here's 
here's Jesus, here, here's Jesus, he's coming, here's the Savior. Uh, and, and guess what? Uh, God knew he was gonna, they were going to reject it, right? And, and so the Jewish, the Jewish people had this mindset that we are the world, right? How could he be judge of the world? But he was trying to show them that, no, you're, you're not the world, right? You're not the world. Um, so God is not unfair, nor is he unrighteous, right? And so let, 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 me, just, let, let me just illustrate this more and more uh, because this can get confusing. Um, how many of you guys are gift givers? You have a lot of stuff, so you could give gifts, right? Um, how many of you guys have ever given a gift and it got rejected? Right? So I do this a lot. Um, I try to give as much uh, to, to Justin, actually. Um, I give him all my excess clothing, right? Any button downs that get too big, that, that get too tiny because I'm getting too big, um, right? Muscularly, you know what I mean, um, right? Any 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 clothes that I'll I'll hand it down to him, right? And then if he doesn't take it, Jim gets it, <laughs> right? Um, if he doesn't take it, Jim gets it. But there there are times Justin doesn't take it, and I give it to Jim, and he sees it on Jim, and he's like, oh snap, that joint is that's a nice button down. That's a really nice button down where I'm like, dude, you should have took it in the first place, right? And in the same way, this is what, 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 what Paul is saying. Jesus gave you the gift. He is extending it to you right now that the work that Jesus did on the cross, right, his death and his resurrection is the gift that gets you into heaven. It's his life, his work. This is the gift that Jesus is constantly extending to his people. Um, this is the gift that we have and, and for those of us that we have received and we can let it pass us by or we can accept it and let it change us and we can live for Jesus. And so this is why Paul's saying this question, how is God unrighteous if you rejected the gift? How is God evil and, and, and unrighteous and unfair if he constantly extends this gift to you and you constantly reject it? So is God not righteous to inflict the wrath that he constantly said, look, you need to receive this so you don't get wrath? God is good. God is perfect. God is above what we can ever imagine. His thinking is godlike. Ours is nothing close to being godlike. God is on a complete different level, complete different category. And this is what Paul is trying to get at more and more. And in verse Verse 7, it says, but if through my lie, God's truth, abounds to, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that I may come, um, that good may come? Right? Uh, if my lie brings out God's goodness, brings out his faithfulness, right, uh, shouldn't I keep on sinning, right? And this is what some people thought Paul was saying, that uh, keep doing evil so that good may come. And, and, and no, this is not what Paul was saying, right? Paul says, you, you want to do evil that good may come, your, your condemnation is just. What you are about to receive, you deserve that thing. 
You want to keep on sinning. You want to keep on doing evil, right? Paul says you're, you, you, you get in God's wrath, it's just because you want to keep living in your own way. Guys, doing evil so that good may come, you're still doing evil. You're not bringing out about the good. Do you get what I'm saying? If this is your mindset, that if I could just sin, then I can experience God's grace. Because this was my mindset a few years ago, that if I could just have one day of sin, I will understand how cool these testimonies of someone who is a drug addict, someone who is a porn addict, someone who is a drunkard, I will understand the God's grace so much more. Do you see how messed up that mindset is? <laughs> it doesn't bring about goodness. Evil is, if you do evil, if you do sinful things, it's going to bring, give birth to sinful things. Who brings the good is God being gracious and merciful, and that is what's good. God is the one who brings the good. It is not us. God does not need our help to bring about goodness. Okay, we don't obey so that we could spread goodness. We obey, right, because of the gospel, because God accepts us, and because of what we know what he did on that cross, we want to share that to other people. We cannot bring about goodness. Guys, our view of God is one of the most important things about us. This whole entire time, in, in these next few chapters of Romans, Paul is going to show us how hopeless we are constantly. How hopeless we are, how we cannot save ourselves, how we cannot bring about the good in the world apart from the Lord. Right, the first six chapters of Romans are, are going to be gut-wrenching, and they're going to show you in comparison to God, you are nothing. And that is a good thing. It's a great thing. For you parents, when you had a baby, right, did you expect it to do anything? No. You cared for it. You love, you, you love the baby. Because it was weak. It was fragile. It needed you. And this is what Paul's trying to get at. Get to that weak and fragile state. Understand that your weakness is a good thing because God could coddle you like a little child. How many of you guys love getting coddled sometimes? By your wife and your husband. You love when they hug you, right? And in, in, in the same way, God, God, let God do that. Paul says this. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is the Lord talking to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is what Paul's trying to get at the whole entire time. That's why he says in, in verse 9, then what then are... Are Jews any better off? No, not all. Uh, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. T together they have become worthless. No one does good, not, not even one. And, and again, this is what Paul is trying to drill into our heads, that we are not good. But there is one who is good and there is one who wants you, who wants to hold you, who wants to coddle you, who wants you to realize that you don't have to work your way into his, his acceptance. He already accepted you the moment you accept his work on that cross. God is at a different, complete level that you are so below that. If God was, uh, if there was, if we can compare God to ownership, right, he is the owner of owners, right. He is the president to the president. He is the creator of everything that we see, everything that we know, all right. And if we think we know, God knows knows more. That is the God that we serve. This is the God that wants to serve you. This is the God that wants to protect you. This is the God who wants to save you. This is the God who wants to love you unconditionally. So he's saying, be weak. Be weak. Because in your weakness, you are the strongest. Because in your weakness, you are depending on me. God. We are nothing in comparison to the goodness, the faithfulness, and the perfection of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you use, I know I quote Tim Keller a lot, but you use this guy. And he says this in his, his book, on the cross, Christ wins through losing. Triumphs through defeat, achieves power through weakness and service. Comes to wealth via giving all away. Jesus Christ turns the values of the world upside down. God, I pray that as a church, we will become weak. That as a church, we will depend on you and you alone. And we don't try to do things on our own. I pray as individuals, God, as husbands and wives, as boyfriends and girlfriends, God, that we don't try to navigate through these things alone. That, that God, we will depend on you. God, I know for my wife and I, I constantly, uh, one of my prayers for us is that God bring us to a state of dependency. And I pray the same thing for every single person in this room, that you will bring us to a state of dependency, whether that be financial, whether that be uh, physically, um, whether that be emotionally, spiritually, God, that all we have is you. I know personally, at my darkest, God, you have saved me. At my darkest, you have constantly 
saved me. At my darkest, you are constantly loving me. You are constantly telling me about how good you are. And in the same thing, God, I pray as a church and individuals in this place, God, in our darkness, God, that you will save us. That you will show us that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are perfect. And God, when we feel too strong, when we feel like we got this handle, God, may you bring us back down. And for some of us, if we're feeling too strong, may we humble ourselves, get on our knees. May may we be weak before the person who is strong. Thank you for your work on that cross, God. I pray if there's anyone in this room that has not accepted the gospel that God, that we do so now. The gospel being that Jesus has done all the work on the cross. Has taken our sin, our shame, all our addictions, and he nailed it to the cross. And and he died for that. And on the third day that, that God rose our Savior Jesus from the dead. And if we accept that, if we confess that, then we have life. Then we have grace. Then we no longer have to obey to be accepted, but obey because we are accepted. God, may you have a heart. May you have this church. May may you just, God, I just pray that this church will be a place where the gospel is constantly shared, where the gospel is constantly present, not because of the building, but because of the people in it. May you use us as instruments for your goodness. In our weakness, may you use us as instruments for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.